As is usually the case, we're blessed this morning with a good attendance. The health of our membership is good, and some visitors have also come our way. And we want every person to know how honored we are and thankful we are that you've come our way. And we're so excited to be able to assemble for the purpose we are today, to worship. That is such a significant, important thing in the Word of God, isn't it? Did Jesus Himself say, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve, Matthew 4, verse 10. And so, as we've assembled and gathered, what a great encouragement it is to us, but more important, an opportunity to magnify and glorify God. As was mentioned earlier in some of those songs that we have just sang, to glorify God, blessed be the name, the understanding that goes with them maybe brings us exactly to the title, as you can see on the wall to my left. We're going to discuss for the next few moments the Lord's Supper. As we do that, this particular comment, these particular statements to perhaps introduce the lesson, it would seem to me would be in order. Worship, as we've already noted, is significant. In fact, we recognize it will be a feature, an aspect of what shall ultimately be brought to bear at the day of judgment. One who has failed to worship properly, one who has in fact neglected that duty, will be held by the great God of heaven, not in favorable standing. That's how important worship is. Aren't we thankful today we can worship and that we're assembled for the purpose? As you'll notice on that slide, though, the concept of a memorial, the very issue that surrounds that is not a matter to be taken so very lightly. Aren't you and I mindful that there are memorials in our world today? You visit Washington, D.C., and there's the Vietnam War Memorial. There are memorials to some of the other great events in the history of our land. And when you witness and see the names written in those places, or you bring to your imagination the features unfolded in memory, sometimes tears stream down faces of those who are so moved by the recollection of those events. Memorials are also important to God, you know. In Joshua chapter 4, when the children of Israel crossed through that Jordan River, God told Moses, one more thing I don't want you to forget. You have those men crossing through that. From every tribe of man needs to take a, sto- a, a rock, a stone out of that river. And when you get to the other side, erect a memorial with them so that you'll never forget. You'll never forget. May I submit to you, the New Testament, of course, has a tremendous consideration of memorials as well, and we're going to study one of them, perhaps the premier one in great detail this morning, the Lord's Supper. When we take that and just a bit later in our service this morning, it's always a very moving moment, and it's always a very compelling time. As you and I think about it, why don't we develop it like this? First, let's give some reflection to the specifics out of which that institution was founded. And when we do that, then we'll be prepared to draw a few lessons or a few observations about it. You remember the scene with me. It was the very week in which our Savior was crucified. He had taught for some amount of time, in fact, a little bit over three years in a public ministry, He had witnessed before them a livelihood given to godliness. He had gone about always doing what was good. He had healed many and touched the lives of so very many in so many ways. And yet, he had already entered triumphantly into Jerusalem. And by this point, we recognize the very moment of his demise. Though the crowd around, of course, didn't know it, he knew it. 
He knew what was about to happen. He had already told the apostles more than once, I'm going to Jerusalem and there I'll be turned over to the Gentiles. Luke 18, verses 31 to 33. And you know what? He said those Gentiles are going to put him to death. They're going to kill him. All the while referring to himself. And he knew the moment was not very far into the future. As we arrive particularly at Mark chapter 14, we notice that the celebration of the Jewish Passover was of course now imminent. It was about to take place. And in particular, you'll appreciate that he gave word to two of his apostles, you go and make ready that we may celebrate that feast, that Passover. They made ready, and so Jesus assembled the apostles in an upper room in Jerusalem. And as he did, you'll notice about the middle of that, this corresponded to the first day of that feast of unleavened bread. Now that was a week-long feast in which the Jews had to have no association with nor dealings concerning leaven. The feast of unleavened bread. As that particular feast unfolded, it takes us back immediately to the events that transpired roughly 15 centuries prior. You remember it with me well. Israel at that time was still in Egyptian bondage. But on the very last night, we remember that God was going to bring death to the firstborn, all of those who had no blood on the doorpost, nor blood on the lintel. And you remember that on that very night, God said, you with your staff in your hand, shoes on your feet, you partake of this in haste. Tonight you're going to come out. And so it was that that Passover that night was something that they recognized and they had observed that particular feast for 15 centuries. Now if that was of course kept every single year, that would have been 1,500 times. Now it would appear that as you and I give thought to the significance of that Passover... May we not forget that of it there was unleavened bread. God commanded that of them in Exodus chapter 12. And there was also wine. There was fruit of the vine. In light of that fruit of the vine, I have asked you to make note that those particular items held a special significance in light of what the Lord Himself was about to do. Think for just a moment about the constancy or at least the uniformity that those apostles no doubt would have appreciated. Every year it's done the same way. Every year the items in the same order are partaken. And yet this night Jesus did something different. This night He did something unusual. On this occasion something was out of the ordinary. In particular the Lord's actions. There came a time in the midst of that Passover celebration, apparently not too far from its conclusion, in which Jesus took some unleavened bread. And the text very carefully says He gave thanks for it, broke it, and gave it to them. Now, there had already been an appreciation of a meal. They had already partaken and eaten of various things during the course of that evening. And yet, the Lord here did something very unusual. It captured their attention in an endless way. As you'll notice at the bottom of that slide and also as it transitions to the top of the next one, you'll notice as the Lord gave this to them, this explicit statement in the Word of God is now found. Jesus Himself said, Take, eat, this is my body. Furthermore, which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. That's the explicit wording found in Luke 22, verse 19. 
this is my body. Now clearly as the Lord made reference to that unleavened bread, He associated it uniquely with His body. And furthermore, He affirmed this is to be taken in remembrance of me. As you in your mind's eye for a moment now imagine all of those apostles taking it and eating of it. Doesn't it ask us to note this? That wasn't all the Lord did. Furthermore, in the very next verse, it informs us that the cup after supper, He took it. He gave thanks for it. He gave it again to them. Now, when you think about the significance of the events of the evening, they sang hymns. They appreciated from their own history of being taught by parents and teachers and otherwise, and yet the Lord did this unusual thing. He said, This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper saying, And I would also ask you to notice a comment embedded in the powerful Word of God. Jesus said, Drink ye all of it. Furthermore, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now this institution was certainly a very different thing. This, they weren't accustomed to seeing a Passover celebrated like this, and there was good reason for it. We're about to develop more critically and somewhat interestingly, I hope, this morning. Among other things, might I ask you to appreciate this statement. After giving that, the very next wording out of the mouth of our Master is this. I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Please notice the word new. Although the Passover had been kept for centuries, individuals of Jews had lived and died and all their life celebrated the Passover. Jesus said something new about this one is now going to be in its establishment. And this newness, of course, surrounds the very topic we're discussing this morning. In the Old Testament, they celebrated a Passover, reminding them of God's gracious provision for them leaving Egypt. But this one, this what the Lord did, He said, was a remembrance of me. It's my body. It's my blood. This do in remembrance of me. With those thoughts and ideas in mind, that became such a vital and vibrant part of that early church. In Acts 2, verse 42, the very day the church began... It says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. The breaking of bread appears to be a very powerful association and reference to the very matter of the Lord's Supper. From the very first day the church began, it has been a vital part of it. You and I still today honor it. And we still today look upon it with all the respect to which it's due. Furthermore, in Acts 20, verse number 7, as the Apostle Paul was engaging on the third missionary journey, you might recall that he was in fact striving with great diligence to arrive at Jerusalem by the time of the festival of that year. And yet when he came to Troas, he waited seven days. He tarried seven days. Now why would a man in a hurry wait seven days to celebrate the Lord's Supper? To meet with brethren and celebrate the Feast of the Lord you and I, and no doubt, look forward to it too. We can't wait for the opportunity because of all the privilege that goes with it. One last reference would be 1 Corinthians 11. And it is to that we'll turn some attention this morning. But in that chapter, one more time, a first century church was given instruction about the importance 
and the great significance that goes with the observance of the Lord's Supper. Today, as we've come together, it will be, of course, a very high part of what you and I do, recognizing all the New Testament has to say about it. Maybe in light of those things, having rehearsed briefly the events of that original night of the Lord's establishment of it, why don't we then ask about some lessons, observations you and I might make from the way the New Testament describes the Lord's Supper. One of the first things I would suggest is think about the name. Think about the name. What do we call this? Notice it isn't called Passover. Although in the Old Testament they, of course, well recognize that. You and I notice that. The Lord's Supper is not a Passover. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 still tells us Jesus Christ is our Passover. So it would not be right to refer to this in any way as a Passover. If you and I desire to do Bible things in Bible ways and call Bible things by Bible names, then we ought to desire to call it whatever it is by a name designated in Scripture. At this point, let's look at 1 Corinthians 11 and see what it was called in the first century with apostolic authority. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, verse number 20, When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. We have thus Paul making reference to the name Lord's Supper as an appreciation for that which you and I do. That would be a right name, a proper name. And aren't we thrilled to call it by that name? It reminds for us the concept of a supper, and we'll develop that under the heading of this communion in just a moment. But notice it's the Lord's. It doesn't belong to you or me explicitly. It's His blood and His body that is being so highly regarded. With that in mind, consider then the concept of a communion. And that's the first one I ask you to consider with me. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, just one chapter before our reference of a moment ago, we notice there this statement is made. Verse 16, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And twice in that verse, mention is made of this word communion. May I ask, what does that mean? And could that be a very significant observation in its own right? To commune with identifies the thought of a fellowship. It identifies the thought of a togetherness. It identifies the thought of a union in which several are brought in a unified consideration and mission. Communion. In that regard, Paul said, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? I would ask you to notice... When you and I partake of the Lord's Supper, it is a means whereby we can appreciate a powerful identity to what those elements represent. After all, if we've been baptized into Christ, we are in Christ, Galatians 3, 26 and 27. And furthermore, we live daily with Him under the banner of the fact we were crucified with Christ, but now we live in Him and through Him. Notice in Galatians 2, 20, as Christians then, we've identified with Him. Isn't it true we wear His name? Christian. Take the word Christ and add I into it. You and I are Christians. And in that Lord's Supper, as we partake of that together, we do so as a powerful symbol, and yea, even so far more than a symbol in some ways, but an identifying characteristic in which we identify with Christ. 
He died for us and we would die for Him. He died for us to allow you and me to live and we look forward to standing with Him on that day of judgment. He's our advocate, 1 John 2 verse 1. Surely that thought of communion has a bit of a different dimension as well. Not only an individual thrust and focus, consider all of us as a community of believers. We're members of the Pippin Church of Christ and we're thankful for visitors, Christians who come our way. And we together hold high the banner of what the Lord did at Calvary. So much so that we honorably and powerfully celebrate this memorial that He has authorized us to do. We do it as a community of believers. Didn't Paul, as he wrote to that young son of his in the faith, and say in 1 Timothy 3 verse 15, he said, But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of God, the pillar and ground of the truth, how thou oughtest to behave thyself, we do want to do this properly, correctly, appropriately, and ever so rightly. Maybe in light of that, we notice as we partake of the Lord's Supper, it is not a personal arrogant thing in which we want to lift high our own individual capabilities or our talents. That's not the focus. No wonder Jesus said, remember me. And our mind races back to the scene of the cross. And in fact, as it fixes on that moment, perhaps you have been able to develop in your own mind a clear picture of what Jesus on the cross looked like. You see His beaten and battered body. You see the blood dripping from His body onto the ground beneath. You see perhaps the crowd around Him reviling, wagging their heads and their tongues at Him. As you picture all of that, keep in mind His body and His blood. Point number two. When we give thought to this Lord's Supper, you and I have grown up using the word supper in many cases to refer to the evening meal of the day. After a day of hard work on the farm, you come together and eat supper. May we never forget, this supper is not for the purpose of physical nourishment. That's not the idea behind it. That's not the focal point of it. Now, frankly, some in Corinth had a bit of an issue with that. You may remember in 1 Corinthians 11, they were abusing the Lord's Supper. They were bringing their own meal from the house, and as a part of that, they were throwing the Lord's Supper into it. May it never be so. Paul said, when you come together to eat the Lord's Supper, that's not what you're doing. You can't abuse the Lord's Supper that way. It's not like eating a meal at the house. It's not like eating breakfast with eggs and gravy. It's not like eating supper with oats and biscuits. It is not the same. It's worlds apart. In that regard, the concept of physical nourishment, that was a bit prob problematic for them. They were reminded, keep the ideas distinct. Eat those kinds of things otherwise and elsewhere. This is to be regarded differently. When we appreciate that aspect of it, take again back to the scene of when Jesus instituted it. He used bread and He used fruit of the vine, but it had an entirely different focus. It was for an entirely different purpose. Speaking of that, what about the particulars then? Point number three on that slide. Jesus, out of all the things available, selected again the unleavened bread. That one He took first. 
I would ask you to notice, he very clearly said it represented his body. This is my body. Now at that point, might we ask, perhaps to, to make a brief reflection, Jesus himself said that my body is given for you. This body is provided for you. Sometimes you and I might fall into a bit of a bad habit in that regard. We are taught in John 19, 36, not a single bone of his body was ever broken. Not one in the crucifixion process, not a single bone was broken. In fact, fulfilling prophecy found in the heart of the Old Testament in the book of Psalms. As you and I then think about that, may we never get in mind the thought of his bones being broken, for they weren't. Now, his body was mutilated. It was beaten. It was scourged. It was mistreated. It was very much mangled. But even in 1 Corinthians 11, the following statement from Paul was made. As he referred to the body, he put it like this. Verse number 24 of 1 Corinthians 11. And when he had taken and when he had given thanks, he brake it, that's the bread, and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is for you, this do in remembrance of me. One of the things that we might notice is the King James translation uses the word broken in that verse. But that's not the happiest of translations. The original Greek did not have that word in it. Thus Jesus, by quotation from Paul, said, This is my body which is for you, this do in remembrance of me. As you and I then, in our mind's eye, think about the Lord's Supper, we certainly would be right to think about the difficulty His body experienced. But no bones were broken. That doesn't mean it wasn't painful. That doesn't mean it wasn't agonizing. And it doesn't mean that it wasn't brutal. Because it was. To be subjected to that scourging. To be subjected to that harassment. To be subjected to that feeling of loneliness. Didn't Jesus, even while on the cross, say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? to quote Matthew 27. And yet in that particular statement, he again quoted from Psalm 22, verse 1. Isn't it sometimes very compelling to then think about all those features? The blood's up next. When Jesus took that fruit of the vine, you and I easily again could keep in mind the fact that that fruit of the vine is in a container. You and I use plastic cups. The container itself is not the vital matter of importance, is it? It could be glass cups, plastic cups. It could be another kind of vessel that contains a liquid. But the fact is, Jesus laid great emphasis on the contents of that cup. It's the contents that represent His blood, that fruit of the vine. Throughout the centuries, there have been others that have had issues with that. Can I use one cup? Can I use more? Does God demand one or the other? Let us quickly say that the way in which we partake of it here at the Pippin Church of Christ is in full harmony with the nature of the biblical teaching. And in fact, we thrill to remember the blood of Christ as we take that fruit of the vine. In light of that, you'll notice in Matthew 26, 28, Jesus made an explicit statement. In reference to that fruit of the vine, He said, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. That blood that the Lord shed while hanging there on the cross, dripping down His face and running down His back and dripping onto the ground beneath, what precious blood it was. 
For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Hebrews 9.22 And so when we partake of that fruit of the vine, our mind must race then to the reality of the blood. Maybe that particular leads us to a fourth point. Another one that I would ask you to consider at the top of this next slide. The matter of remembrance. The matter of remembrance. More than once, Jesus explicitly said, This do in remembrance of me. You may even see that written on the front of the table that's here before me. This do in remembrance of me. When we take it, we must make a concerted effort to remember. That is a commandment. We mustn't allow our mind to think about lunch today, to think about a ball game tonight, to think about matters at work Tuesday, to think about perhaps a nice day at the lake tomorrow. This is not the time for that. This is far more significant. In our mind, we must make a diligent effort to think about the body and the blood. Remembering. This is a timeless matter, isn't it? It shall stand until the end of time. And in that concept of remembrance, that significance is so very noteworthy, isn't it? They in Corinth were having an issue abusing the Lord's Supper, and the concept of remembrance wasn't as embedded as it ought to have been. May you and I be wiser than that. May we be honorable with respect to the biblical text than that. That concept of remembrance closes by appreciating it is only because of what He did that I can be a Christian, that I can have sin forgiven, and that I can have hope of heaven. Oh, what happened at the, at the cross? The blood that was shed and the body that was, again, so badly beaten and mutilated. Maybe point number five. Looks like I misnumbered them. My apology for that. The bottom, this matter of proclamation. When you think about this other aspect of it, I've always found it intriguing, and I'm sure you do as well. The Lord's Supper is very unique in one important stance, isn't it? We've already learned this morning that there is an element of remembrance in it. We must go back nearly 2,000 years now and think about those events that really transformed all the course of human history at the cross. But by the same token, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 says this, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till He come. And the word show literally means to declare or to proclaim. You and I are making an open public profession and proclamation of the fact that Christ died for us. We believe that event happened. We're sure of it. So sure are we. We're going to keep ever alive this memorial every Sunday for as long as we live. And yea, until the end of time. Would you notice again that this is a proclamation till He come. You and I do not know when Jesus is going to return. It may be within our lifetime, and it might not be. But we can be convinced of the following. You and I will be faithful to observe this Lord's Supper every single Sunday, every first day of the week, so long as we live. Now, the next generation that follows us, it's going to continue onward literally until time shall have its end. When the very King Himself shall descend in the clouds, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 and following, tell us, 
The dead in Christ are going to rise first. We're going to rise to meet Him in the air. And then we'll have the full fruition of all that we've appreciated by way of memorial throughout all our life. Isn't that grand? Isn't that amazing? Surely that concept of proclamation recalls to our mind that the events transfigured and set before us in that event even had prophecies contained in the heart of the Old Testament. Zechariah 13.1 foretold the moment and occasion on which outside Jerusalem a fountain for cleansing would be opened. Guess what? With the shedding of the blood of Christ, that fountain now spews forth great refreshing blood by virtue of which any person who's covered by it can be cleansed. That's a powerful fountain, isn't it? In light of that concept of a fountain, why don't we come to the close of our lesson with one final point. The last one challenging us to think about the features concerning our participation in the Lord's Supper. I would ask you to read with me beginning in verse number 28 of 1 Corinthians 11 and listen to the strong language that Paul directed to the Corinthian congregation and the way in which it touches you and me today as we observe the Lord's Supper as well. Verse 28 says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. Now, pausing at verse 33, you notice that Paul has directed some very strong comments to the Corinthian church. And he told them explicitly the following, Let a man examine himself. Might you and I pause for a moment to, to observe. As we then examine ourselves, that rests upon us a consideration of striving within ourselves to live faithful to what that supper represents. If I'm a Christian, am I striving to live in harmony with the things of, of God? Now you'll notice something very interesting. Of our own volition, nobody will ever be worthy of the blood of Christ or of His body. We're sinners. We recognize then that I couldn't claim to be worthy of it. But God gave it to me as a gift, and He gave it to you as a gift. That blood of Christ was shed, and all who accept the offer that, that it sets forth can be forgiven of sin and live in harmony, of course, with God. But he did say there's an aspect of this in which we examine ourselves. Surely that examination would quickly lead us to see and appreciate that if all isn't well with my life, I should strive to make it so because of what this supper represents. He goes on to say this, verse 28, Let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily. The word unworthily is an adverb. It describes then or modifies a verb. It does not modify nouns. It's not modifying the person that takes it. It modifies the way that person takes it. He's got to take it worthily. And he identifies what he means by that. He says, not discerning the Lord's body. When you and I partake of this, as we noted earlier in the lesson, it is of utmost and vital significance 
while we're partaking of that bread to remember his body. That word discern means to set apart, to identify, to recognize as significant. It's not a time to be daydreaming, is it? It's not a time to be thinking about other matters that might in fact distract us. And don't you know the devil wants us to be distracted. He wants our mind to be somewhere else. But Paul said to the Corinthians, don't allow it to happen. Strive to remain focused, mindful of that body and blood of Jesus. Because he says, those who do not eat and drink damnation to their soul. That sounds very chilling, doesn't it? It sounds very serious, doesn't it? And we have to believe that God meant what He said. So if we fail to partake of this as we ought, it likely suggests that there's something wrong with our life. It likely suggests, among other things, that our life is not directed in full faithfulness as it ought to be. And it likely suggests that our failure here is just a symptom of failures far, far that might be mentioned elsewhere. But the least we could observe is this, to fail to observe it properly. One brings damnation to his soul. One more thing, and then the lesson will draw to a close. Some in Corinth had so failed in their participation in it. And he said, for this cause, verse 30, for this cause, for the very reason they had failed to partake of it, he said, some, or excuse me, many, he said, are weak and sickly. So might we make this interesting comment. When we fail to partake of this, the emblematic symptoms that go along with that and the characteristic nature of a weak Christian life, Paul said they in Corinth were spiritually weak and they were spiritually sick. What about your spiritual health this morning? Are you prepared in just a minute to partake of this in the way the Lord instituted it? Are we prepared to take of it in a way in which it truly is the, uh, the amazing and meaningful moment that it is? If you're not a faithful Christian, you cannot answer yes to that. If you're not a faithful Christian, you cannot answer in the affirmative because the very thing that stands for, you're not living by. If you've never been baptized, you are not yet covered in His blood until so far the blood doesn't mean much personally to you. Do you want to continue living that way? Please think with urgency about it. Might we say that without the shedding of blood is no remission. And so if you're not a faithful Christian, maybe you've never become one. Don't you want to do that today? May I say to you, I realize you've never partaken of the Lord's Supper, but once you're baptized and you're a Christian, for the first time in your life you will be able to partake of this, and you'll never, ever forget the first day. It'll be such a moving thing. May I say, if you have been, been a Christian, maybe for a long time, but maybe you've allowed things in life to become such that you no longer are faithful, you know it, others know it, don't you want to come and beg God's forgiveness as we pray to Him on your behalf? And may I say, you can then, in a renewed and refreshed way, partake of the Lord's Supper in a moment, and again, it'll be such a meaningful thing. The Lord's Supper has been our study. As we close our lesson, our considerations have brought us to think with urgency, examining ourselves. If we could help anybody today in your response to the gospel's call of invitation, we'd be delighted to assist you. We would only ask you, let us know the way we can help, and why not do it now while together we stand and while we sing.